You're listening to Money Makers, talking with leading professional investors about current trends and opportunities in the financial markets. Yes, hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan Davis, and today joining me in the studio to talk about the exciting world of technology investing is one of the UK's leading professional investors in that sector. He is Ben Rogoff, fund manager at Polar Capital, who has been the lead manager of the Polar Capital Global Technology Fund and the Polar Capital Technology Investment Trust for the past 11 years. In total, his team managed something like £2.5 billion of investors' money, and the shares have done extraordinarily well, particularly in the last few years. They're up more than five times in that period. So there's lots to talk about in this area. What about those uh, large global technology companies in the, uh, such as Amazon, uh, Apple, Alphabet, or Google as we used to know it, Facebook, Netflix, and so on? who've been setting a cracking pace for the last few years, and particularly this year, up very strongly. Can they keep up that pace? Is there more to come from that sector? Or are they heading for a crash, as some observers would say? Is this a repeat of the year 2000, when technology stocks famously uh, rose so fast and then crashed dramatically? And of course, it's not just about uh, internet stocks that we get excited in technology space. Think about robots, artificial intelligence, driverless cars, the cloud, electronic games... Uh, and e-commerce. All these things are part of what you can broadly describe as the technology sector. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. So Ben, let's just dive straight in, shall we, with one of the questions that's on the top of many investors' minds. And it is about those famous five or famous six, the FANG stocks, Amazon, Facebook, and so on, who've been setting such a cracking pace this year. Their performance has been strong, at least in some cases, and certainly over the last five years. So let me ask you, first of all, are we approaching some kind of bubble, as uh, some people seem to think? Um, well, before I answer the question, thank you so much for having me here today to talk about the sector. And it has been a, a wonderful uh, period that we've, we've been, been enjoying. So let's get to the question. Um, well, first, the question is, are, are we in a bubble? And I, I mean, my sense is that we are absolutely not in a bubble, but that there are always in tech pockets of excitement that ultimately may not um, live up to expectations. And I think we, we've lived with that as tech investors, and I think it goes with the territory. It's one of the reasons why we typically stay away from private um, markets. We never invest in pre-public um, opportunities. We also have a very jaundiced view of early stage uh, companies that are going to change the world. Um, because in my 20 plus years experience of investing in technology, many of those companies, most of those companies, dare I say, um, don't make it. Um, but that actually some of those technologies do end up changing the world, um, but on a much late, later date and perhaps in a different pair of hands. And if you think actually about some of the FANG stocks that you've just referenced, um, when we were excited about the internet in the, in the late 90s, um, Alphabet or Google didn't exist. And so as an investor, we spent much time um, you know, pontificating about which of the search engines would rule the world. Um, only one of them made it, which was Yahoo. Um, and Yahoo, everyone knows, was a sort of runner-up and a very distant runner-up to, to now the dominant player, which is Google. So I think just to set the scene, I think what the sector has been delivering on, and I think what's come to investors' attention, truthfully, and it's manifest in the numbers of those companies, is that the sector is delivering on that 90s promise. And so I studied history, and one of the things that I'm, I was left with after my, you know, modest three years of, uh, of studying that, that, that tremendous subject was that history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. 
And I think what we're seeing and feeling at the moment is a period that rhymes with the 90s. And so I think it's apt to, to, to call out a bubble when actually it's the sector delivering. Um, and, and as I say, that's manifest in numbers. So when people talk about Facebook, um, they rarely reference the fact that the company's forward PE is you know, a fraction of its forward growth rate. And that um, unlike the 90s, when people were investing in companies on the basis that you know, if you build it, they will come. Well, I think we, it's fair to say that we've arrived. Facebook has 2 billion people visiting the site every month and I think 1.3 billion every day. Um, and so we can come back to the risk associated with these uh, franchises in a minute. Um, but I think that the difference between this and the 90s is that the people have come and that these businesses are all changing user behavior, user expectations and creating enormous opportunities to monetize uh, those markets. It's obviously become a scale game where there's the possibility of some of these global companies achieving you know, worldwide domination, if you like. Uh, we talk about the risks in those stocks, but I suppose one thing that they do have, which was not the case back in 2000, is they do have lots of earnings. They account for a significant portion of the earnings increase we've seen in the American market, and they're still growing. Yeah, I think the key is that what most of those companies share is that they won in the mobile world. You know, smartphones have become the dominant um, form of communication. Um, if you think back to the 90s, one of the reasons why the internet couldn't have delivered on its promise really was that it was a PC-centric network. Um, you know, we access the internet uh, on narrowband. Um, for, for, for listeners who don't recall what narrowband is, it was when you're uh, a copper line that you shared with your telephone. Uh, and, you know, you could spend two days trying to download something because the bandwidth was so modest, the speeds were so slow, and your mother might pick up the phone and halfway through that and uh, you'd have to start from scratch. Um, very different world. In 2000, 134 million PCs were sold. Um, compare and contrast that with the smartphone market where we're comfortably above 2 billion as an annual market now. And, and people are spending enormous amounts of time on those smartphones. And so if you think about the dominant franchises, um, you know, Facebook clearly has, 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 a, has a wonderful position in social media. Google is absolutely dominant, 90% um, market share in US mobile search the last time I looked. Um, Amazon has done a, a terrific job of transitioning to, to M-commerce, mobile commerce. Um, Priceline, uh, booking.com is the, is the kind of front end that your listeners may have used, I'm sure have used. Um, they also have done exceptionally well in, in a mobile world. Um, Netflix, um, less so. I mean, obviously it does very well, has a great app for, uh, for mobile devices, but I think that's a slightly different story. But I think the key is, is that the companies that we, we're now talking about today um, have all transitioned or have, have changed behavior and benefited from a smartphone-centric world. And so I suppose one question from an investor's point of view is that it's quite a good thing if you've got a natural monopoly or you develop sufficient scale to keep out competitors. That's a positive for the investors in that stock. But I guess from a global consumer's point of view, that's not necessarily such a good thing. Do you think we're going to see, as a result of that, some pushback there against the kind of natural monopoly that these big companies seem to have developed over time from regulators and indeed from consumers? Yeah, I think it's the right term, natural monopoly, in that I don't believe, although I can't possibly know this because I don't work at any of these companies, but I don't believe that any of these companies have, have abused their position. Uh, I appreciate that the EU is um, looking at Alphabet, Google, um, and, and uh, has some issues at some of the stuff that the company has allegedly done in Europe. Um, but my sense is that these are natural monopolies in that their scale um, precludes others from um, being able to deliver the same type of outcomes, whether it be search, um, Amazon scale. If you have 500 million items potentially for sale, it's pretty tough to compete against. Have they done anything wrong? Of course not. But the scale is in itself a huge barrier uh, to, to entry. Um, so the question I suppose is, does that, does that attract regulatory scrutiny? And I suspect the answer, as you've alluded to, is inevitably yes. Um, I think that where, you know, just to be clear, I mean, we have large positions in the investment trust in Alphabet, in Facebook, we have a 
very decent sized position in Amazon. We have done for years. Um, and each of these companies is, um, you know, in, in, in certainly pole position in their in their core markets. So, um, but the reason that we're kind of relatively sanguine about the regulatory risk is that, well, I think that consumers love these businesses. Um, that, you know, surely a regulator is there to step in in order to protect consumers. But consumers love Facebook. That's why 1.3 billion of them visit the site every day. Um, and so I think, tr- truthfully, when I step back on, uh, away from it, I suspect that regulatory scrutiny is inevitable. Um, I'm sure that in the telecom industry, at some point, people understood that, that, that at some point this would be, uh, become something that was regulated. Um, the electricity industry, um, after its creation, um, was probably a free-for-all until it wasn't. And, and my sense is that this is a, a, more, a wider conversation piece, which is that in a world of cloud computing, where technology is delivered as a service, um, there are huge scale economies in, in that provision. And that will, by definition, um, lead to situations where I think on a very long term view, we probably are looking at regulation. Um, because th- these, you know, take take Adobe and creative uh, in, in software used by creatives around the world. There isn't much competition left. Again, this wonderful company delivers incredible value to its to its users. Um, but on a very long term view, this company is not a monopoly, but certainly is enjoying uh, you know a very strong pole position. So I think the overall question, I can't we can't resolve it. It's inevitable. Uh, I think it's a mark of success. Um, and I suspect that for now, at least, regular, regulatory scrutiny will be light because ultimately consumers are getting great utility from these platforms. They're still getting benefit from that. Yes, of course. But another thing is that some of these big companies are just buying up all their competitors, aren't they? Anybody that seems to emerge as a potential rival to, say, Facebook or Google, gets gobbled up pretty quickly by their larger rivals. Is that not a concern? I think that... um I think that the incumbent technology companies have read the same books that I've read and obviously many, many more. Uh, and so as an investor, as a tech investor specifically, you're kind of bred or brought up on this idea that the valuation of in- the value, excuse me, of incumbency diminishes hugely at the end of a cycle. And so the value of being a, the mainframe winner is diminished in the mini computer world and so on and so forth. And so clearly Mark Zuckerberg understands that uh, in the same way that Larry Ellison at Oracle understands that. Um, and so I think that the industry has um, has developed and, underst- and understands that it needs to be, you know, only the paranoid survive. And so there's an awful uh, lot of M&A being done. Now, as an investor, I delineate between M&A types. A company like Facebook that's able to go out and buy WhatsApp um, or Oculus Rift, for example, a company that you know, had a dominant position, albeit in a very small market at the time in virtual reality, uh, virtual reality uh, head-mounted displays. Um, that, to me, is good forward planning. Now, again, it's, at the time, it's very difficult to know whether or not the price paid for WhatsApp was a good price. But in hindsight, it absolutely was um, they, that hugely augmenting the overall Facebook proposition. Um, I, I, I think that M&A like that as a whole is something as an investor that we ought to applaud because it supports the long-term, the, the long-term growth profile of that business uh, and diminishes the risk associated, which is, again, what you're alluding to. The other side of the equation are companies that are on the wrong side of history, companies that are being diminished by a new cycle. That M&A, to me, is money that should have been spent through the P&L on R&D. But instead, you leverage your balance sheet and you use this free cash flow to create this sort of, this facade, if you like, of, of youth, when really um, the M&A is indicative of a kind of a, a malaise in the core business. It's like a sort of finger in the dike. 
Very much so. And I think, uh, absolutely right. I mean, perfect parallel. And I think, you know, PCT, the Investment Trust, Public Cap Tech Trust, was uh, a big beneficiary of that type of transaction last year. We had nine takeouts, which which was a lot. Um, You know, and I think that reflects lots of things. But I think the the key driver of that M&A is that that companies like Oracle and Cisco, IBM and, you know, others, um, are feeling the pinch. They're, They're companies that have dominant market shares in enterprise compute, and we're moving to a world of cloud. Uh, and those transactions reflect that. You've talked a lot in your fund literature about the disruptive effect, a revolution, if you like, that's going on in the information technology sector in particular. Can you explain what you mean by that? And how is it going to play out, do you think? Well, I think the the, the way I think about or have thought about the cloud um, and this idea of using the internet to deliver technology as a utility um, in the same way that the transformer made it possible to deliver electricity as a utility rather than something that one did oneself with uh, DC. Um, direct current. Um, yeah, I, the way I've thought about it is very much like a, a moment where an industry goes to a mass production model. And so this would be true in automotive, it would have been true in uh, farming, uh, you know, agriculture, where it used to be something that you did with a horse and a person, and then it became highly mechanized. Uh, and, and we saw that obviously in automotive. I think we're seeing that now in tech, where what was an industry that was bespoke and custom, which had you know, millions of people running around trying to make stuff happen and work together that wasn't designed to work is giving way to a world of much more homogenous um, units of compute that can be um, almost traded um, in the same way that electricity can. And many of the terms that the likes of Amazon that dominate public cloud computing today, but also Google and Microsoft, the terms that they use are references to uh, the electricity industry. And, And so we talk about things like redundancy and latency and, and terms that are very much driven from a, of the electricity. So, so I, at the moment, we're, we're looking at a world where roughly 20% of the world's compute is currently being delivered beyond the enterprise in public cloud That's and outside private. Outside the building where you work. A- absolutely. And so today, the enterprise computing kind of form is dominant. Um, it's just that every incremental unit of compute is heading towards the cloud. Uh, and the reason for that is because I don't have to buy a server or employ another IT person. I can leverage somebody else's expertise. And that incremental unit of compute, of course, is ultimately cheaper than the fixed cost that you, you deliver yourself because their scale, they're mass producing um, what it is that, you know, this is not your core business. If you're a bank, your core business is surely in financial services, not in IT. And so I feel like that's why the electricity model is so perfect. We're at 20% penetrated four or five years from now we feel like we, we could be at 80% penetrated in the cloud. And I think that the disruption that the incumbents are feeling can only intensify from here. Right. So let's go back a step then. You're managing a technology fund. There's all these exciting things going on all over the world. And it's a massively disruptive thing. So there's plenty of change. How do you, as a team or as a fund manager, keep up with all that's going on? And how do you feed that back into the decisions you have to make about your portfolio? I mean, it's a great question. And I think um, I, the, the answer to the question is that you you have deep, hopefully deep domain expertise. And that one of the, the, the most important tasks as a fund manager is that understanding what you don't need to look at anymore. It's um, one of the beauties that comes with age is that understanding that you don't have to be friends to all people and that actually you can't be, a, you know, being a jack of all trades may, 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 may leave you wanting. And I think as a tech manager, we try to think about that a lot. Focus on areas where change is occurring. Um, discard areas where changes occurring in, in all the wrong ways. And so we, we stop looking at the likes of an IBM. I mean, we have a cursory glance at the company, but it's not a company that we anticipate ever buying back for our portfolio. So reallocate the time that you might have spent looking at an IBM or a Hewlett Packard and focus on where changes are occurring for the positive. And so we focus very heavily on themes. Um, we have eight core themes in the portfolio. And the way that we try to um, to 
reflect those themes in the portfolio has, has, has very much to do with the size, the, the scale of the opportunity, um, but also the timing of that opportunity. We're huge believers that change occurs in a non-linear way. Human beings are herd, herders, um, and technology, fascinating that, that um, if you take the cloud, for example, the, the cloud was really um, was financially, the, the paybacks on cloud were, were compelling a decade ago. But it took more than five years longer than that for the cloud, for the asymmetric risk associated with adopting new technologies to be diminished such that adoption could happen. But when it happens, it happens in a hurry. And so if you think about uh, smartphone adoption or before that mobile phone adoption, PC adoption, this is not, an, this is not a linear thing, or it is a linear thing until the price points are, or, or, or that people believe that it's the, the pain of not doing something is perceived to be the, more than the pain of doing something. And all of a sudden you have an adoption, a takeoff, an inflection in adoption that we're excited about. And at that point, um, our investment style, I think, really kicks in because what we've tried to do is assemble a portfolio of companies that might appear to be expensive, um, from a distance, but where the earnings estimate expectations are still for this linear takeoff and actually our, our, our understanding. And so if you go back to Google when it came public, um, the company came public, I think, on 35 times forward earnings or something like that. And at the time, a lot of people thought that it was expensive. Yes. And yet, actually, they blew through those numbers. And in fact, I think in the first year as a public company, it, it had already surpassed two or three years out of the earlier analyst models. And I think that's the perfect, albeit cherry-picking, example of what we're trying to achieve. So you're trying to find the things that actually have the capacity to grow very fast uh, and have the competitive strengths to do that. Um, how important does management play a part in that? I mean, if, if you're sitting on a kind of rocket, you know, you're kind of, it doesn't really matter who you, who you are, does it, to some extent. But there are companies that, that blow their chances and companies that take their chances. So how do you, how do you monitor that? How do you think about that? Yes, that's a great question. I think we, 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 have a, we spend a lot of time meeting with companies, uh, with management teams. We value that part of the investment process highly. It's one of the reasons why we have seven people in the team. Um, we've all worked together now for some time, or at least six of us have. One is a relatively new uh, addition, but he had been a stockbroker of ours for 20 years, so I guess you, you could say he was part of the team uh, previously. So meeting management is critical. We travel to the States a lot, which is where the bulk of the portfolio, but even in, in Asia, we're trying to travel there at least once a quarter um, to, to visit our Japanese and Asian uh, investments. So we spend a lot of time meeting with companies. And I, I think your point is fair, which is that in, in some cases, when a business is doing very well, uh, it would be you know, I think it wouldn't matter as much who's running that business. But I think that the, um, let's take Microsoft, where Satya Nadella has come along, um, you know, in the post-Steve Ballmer world, and really turned the business around um, and pivoted uh, towards, you know, Office 365 um, and as built, is building a cloud business on top of or around that, that proposition that, you know, has a very dominant position in, in office productivity software. So his vision, and, you know, he's bought LinkedIn, which isn't something that necessarily Steve Palmer would have done. And so I think that key individuals can have key roles to play um, in, in extending the life of a franchise. Um, execution is also critical in, in our world. And we'll come back to valuations, but um, our companies typically are growing faster than average. We would therefore expect our companies to trade more expensive than the average company. But as part of that pact, uh, you, you need to deliver the goods. And that's where the management function, I think, is absolutely critical. Well, well one last question on that before we go on to valuations, mm. which is that uh, how do you feel as an investor? Are you comfortable with the kind of uh, corporate structure that people like Google have, where, they, where they've actually put in what you could call a sort of poison pill, I don't know how you care to describe it. Uh, but the, the, you know, the normal corporate governance standards that are available to investors are 
have been changed. I think you're referencing the fact that there are different share uh, yeah. classes. Different um, different shares, yeah. Absolutely. And in the case of you know, Alphabet, there are different classes. Uh, it, there are, I mean, if you took Snap, which was a, a recent IPO, um, people might know it as Snapchat. Um, not, not a stock that we're in, involved with or were involved with on the IPO. But in that particular case, the, the common shareholders have no rights. Um, and, and so the, the question is a good one. How do we feel about that? Um, and how do we bake it into our investment a- approach? And the answer is that I think that uh, as an investor in Amazon, let's say, where our rights are the same as Jeff Bezos is, um, I think we understand that we are minority holders, that this business is about Jeff Bezos and how he and his vision um, for that company pans out uh, in the same way that Tesla would be the same for Elon Musk uh, or Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook. And so it is a good question. And at the risk of sounding flippant, I think we we try to incorporate that risk in our position sizing, in our valuation work, um, and we try to make allowances for it. But I think that the key is to understand that when you invest alongside those individuals in those businesses, you, you should do so on a longer time frame, because I think we're pretty sure that that's how they, as owner managers, are are operating. And, and just to make a positive out of what sounds like a negative, isn't it amazing that we can be investing alongside incredible individuals, the, you know, the Rockefellers of our generation? Um, I think that's an incredible opportunity. So I, I understand the question. I understand the risks associated with it. I think that it's been a long part of the technology, the, the kind of the, the blueprint of technology investing, really. If you think Bill Gates and Steve Barmer were dominant holders of Microsoft, Larry Ellison has been like that, uh, Steve Jobs at Apple. And so I don't think this is new news as such, um, but it is something that is sort of relatively unique to tech. In part because they don't need as much capital as, as, as other firms that are growing this fast would do. Yeah. OK, so let's go on to this valuation issue. What can you say about uh, valuations in general about the technology sector in terms of you know, conventional metrics like PE ratios? Uh, and how would your own portfolio compare if you measured the PE of your portfolio against the technology sector against, say, the US market? How, how, how do they look? Absolutely. So... Here we are, uh, nine years on or something, uh, after the uh, the kind of bottoming of a market, or depending on when your start point was, but it's been a long bull market. And I think it's fair to say that valuations everywhere have, have revalued higher. Um, and so I think listeners should be you know, caveat emptor, but I think that you know we, we, we make no bones about the idea that our valuation is, our, our portfolio valuations have obviously moved higher um, since, since the financial crisis lows, and so you would expect. Yeah. Um, so how do the portfolio stack up? I think it looks pretty attractive. Uh, and again, um, how, why do I say that? Well, I, ultimately, the companies that we've talked about thus far are largely companies that make you can make complete sense of their valuations. Uh, I mean, I think that it might come as a surprise that people think you know Facebook has been growing in the 50s uh, in revenue. And, and you know, if you think about the, the, the revenues divided by the number of active users or monthly users, depending on whatever metric you prefer, actually, it looks like a platform that's very under-monetized, and yet the stock trades on a forward PE in the sort of mid-20s. And so I think that's interesting, because if you went back to the 90s, the company, with all that promise, would have traded on a, you know, I don't know, a price to enthusiasm, (laughs) or a a metric that no one had ever heard of before. Um, And so, you know, on a real, on an earnings uh, basis, this company looks attractive. On a PE to growth ratio, on a peg basis, the company looks attractive. Um, Take Alphabet, uh, and this is is based on... um, Gap earnings. So this is when you take out the impact of stock compensation. Um, and that company is also trading in the mid-20s for a business that has been growing in the low-20s, um, which, again, sound, doesn't sound unreasonable, you know, nine years into a bull market. And, and I when, think... And sorry. You, so when you compare it to Nestle, which is 
you know, trading on a not much smaller multiple and growing at, you know, three, four percent a year. It's it's pretty uh, surprising. Yeah. I, I think so. And uh, I think these companies now, again, you've already at the sort of top of the chat have alluded to the fact that there's there's perceived regulatory risk to some of these businesses. And I think that um, that's somewhat captured in those forward multiples. Now, it's not all mid-20s multiples. If you buy Amazon, you're paying 100 times uh, forward earnings for that business. And so, again, I'd be very careful here. I'm not trying to cherry pick. I think that um, Amazon is a stock that's always traded expensive on a forward PE because the the ultimate the, the, the stock ultimately uh, trades or is valued on very large markets that at some point it should be able to deliver a margin in excess of Walmart. Yes. At, at which point the forward PE in any given, on any given Sunday is frankly irrelevant. Now, again, that, that's not a uh, proposition. That's a long-duration investment that in certain market conditions has less appeal than others. Um, right now, it's something that market's happy to sort of turn a blind eye to the investment and companies just bought Whole Foods. So it's now moving into the groceries, uh, you know, and, and, and a high street, um, albeit high-end uh, grocery business. Um, but I think that people are giving Jeff Bezos and, the, and, and Amazon the benefit of the doubt, and so they should because this is a company that really invented public cloud computing and now is a dominant market share. And, and so the point is that the overall portfolio, um, if we took a median PE, um, which is a way that we look at it, um, the median PE is in the mid-20s for a portfolio that has been, this year, should deliver more than 20% revenue growth, which I think is attractive. Now, the reason we use a median PE is because of companies like Amazon and others that invest for growth, that on any given Sunday, the forward PE is a very poor scale. proxy for valuation. Because these companies, are, the right thing to do, of course, is to build scale and to invest heavily. That creates this barrier to entry that we've already alluded to. Right. Are there any other metrics you look you can you can talk about as far as the valuation is concerned? I mean, price to book is a conventional one that people look at. Does it mean very much in this sector? Not a great deal, if I'm no. honest. It's not the metric we use. I think that the way that we think about valuation is you start from the top. It's price to earnings. If we can't calculate the price to earnings, we would look at price to operating cash flow. So there are lots of companies that appear to not be making money, but of course what they're doing is taking those profits and reinvesting. reinvesting yep. So we'd look at the operating cash flow dynamics of that business. In the event that they're operating cash flow not break even, and there are a few in the portfolio where the vagaries of the model, so the peculiarity of the model means that they take revenues in a rental form, but they're paying costs as if they were a, a traditional licensed software business. Those companies, um, we would look on an, on an EV, so market cap adjusted for cash, divided by sales. Um, I think that's a very sensible metric to you. So it, it, it really starts from the top, earnings, cash flow, and sales. And ultimately, all of them are proxies for earnings. They're just they're earlier than, than the earnings numbers. Um, and again, the, some of the largest, most successful companies have, have, have worked this way, which is to invest incremental profits in building scale and barriers to entry. Uh, the, the, the mantra in tech that I'm sure many investors have heard is winner takes most. Yes. Um, and I think that's that's absolutely the right strategy for our holdings. Okay, so well, you've, got, you've got this portfolio. Uh, you've mentioned that, um, of course, it's deflationary, the impact of all this, this technology. And we are living in a world of low growth and low inflation, uh, a sort of Goldilocks scenario, if you like, that uh, is very helpful, particularly if you are in a sector which has got such growth, strong growth characteristics. Um, but how much, so do you think, uh, what element of the valuations we're seeing now is part of this general enthusiasm for growth uh, and, and is that vulnerable to changes in the economic climate? So if interest rates go up and so on, traditional things like that, there are a lot of worries out there amongst professional investors that this might be a change in the environment. How will that affect your kind of stock? I think it's a, I mean, it's a great question. And I think that there, there certainly has been a scarcity of growth, um, which has um, certainly aided 
the outperformance of the technology sector. Um, and, and so, as you say, this has been, a, oh, I've said this is a long bull market, but it's a very unusual bull market in many ways. And, you know, I think people associate bull markets with strong economic growth, but it's been far from, from that scenario. In fact, it's been, we've been really operating in a, a sub-trend growth world really since the financial crisis. And so our stocks are definitely shone in a world of, um, I suppose, somewhat lacklustre um, overall growth. So post the, the Trump presidential victory that um, caught everybody by surprise, uh, there was a pretty adverse rotation away from tech. Um, and I think that at that point, the market made a very quick move towards reflationary assets, companies that would benefit from pricing power, uh, companies that would, you know, making America great means returning jobs to the states um, and doing all sorts of uh, stuff that ultimately a year on uh, have not transpired. And so the, the good news is that um, that adverse rotation was entirely um, reversed um, over the sort of um, the rest of, I suppose, the last year. Uh, and yeah, and, and tech now is back at the sort of the top of top of the pile. And I think, again, it's continued to deliver in a world of very lackluster growth. So if the question is, um, we're moving into a, a, a latter part of a cycle where growth becomes more plentiful, should that um, take the luster off tech? And I, I suspect the answer is it must if that's what happens. So far, that hasn't happened. And I'm a big believer that a lot of, you know, where, the question everybody asks, of course, post-Great Recession is, where's the inflation gone? But we, you know, the technology sector is doing an awful lot of where is that, where is the inflation? It's being deflated by companies like Uber that maybe take the pressure off buying a second car in order to, but, but being able to lean on, um, on, on, a, on a taxi service or, or, or an Amazon that um, continues to undercut you know, high street retailers or um, this idea of the use of robotics um, and machines to augment human labor. Um, which keeps a, a lid on wage rates. I think the tech sector is a, a very large contributor to the deflation um, and, the, and this subtrend growth that we continue to see. And so at the very worst, I, the way I think about it is that if that scenario does happen, where we do finally move into a world where um, markets, um, or I should say growth rates accelerate, then perhaps our relative luster comes off. But if our companies can keep delivering strong top-line growth, if companies like Facebook and Google can also benefit from higher prices, which I suspect that they will be able to, um, there's a reason why we shouldn't be able to still deliver very strong absolute returns. So the kind of Trump uh, experience, the immediate Trump experience after his election, I mean, is, is an indicator that there, of what might happen if we went into a different environment. But uh, what you're saying is you don't think it's going to be as severe or as, or as marked as, uh, uh, as some people would fear. I think that's exactly right. I think that um, now often the first move in markets ultimately transpires to be the correct move, uh, but just some years later. And and so, um, you know, will the new president or newish president be able to deliver some tax tax reform in 2018? Possibly. Uh, will it be as fantastic as people had hoped it would be previously? Probably not. Um, you know, we're still struggling to undo Obamacare. And so I think that we, you know, one year in, um, in a, a a harsh critic might argue that you know, he looks almost like a lamed up president. Now, of course, the reality is he, he probably is not. But so ultimately, markets will ebb and flow around a, a narrative, whatever that narrative is. Our sense is that um, our sense is that the that Trump will attempt to do some of the things and maybe some of them will ultimately happen. But as long as none of those things ultimately undermine the technology sector, uh, I think you know, we, we can live with the idea of, you know, sharing the spoils with other sectors. So I think the bigger risk that he posed, and uh, you know, if you think about the election campaign, many of the, the names, the people that we've referenced were, you know, fairly vociferously opposed to Donald Trump. Um, and, and so there were question marks about things like net neutrality. 
the ability to just you know the open internet, which so many of the Fang stocks and the Netflixes of this world rely on. Rely on exactly. Yeah. So I think that if we, we if we thought that the regulatory backdrop was changing, you know, I'd be much more concerned about that than I would be say of tax reform benefiting other sectors disproportionately, you know, versus tech. So just before we leave this issue of risks, uh, I mean, there are some other risks out there, obviously. Uh, I'd be to know what you think they, the main risks that you see to the portfolio. And of course, one specific one, I suppose, for investors uh, in the UK is, of course, that uh, the sterling dollar exchange rate might, might reverse or as it started to do. And that would obviously have an impact on your reported returns anyway. Well, it would have a, a very, very big impact. We're you know, 99% non-sterling invested. We do very little hedging. And so we're you know, fully exposed to the... Um, to the to the movements in, in in sterling and obviously returns have been augmented, um, you know pre and post Brexit and so absolutely that would be a, a key risk to to our published returns as you say, um, yeah so that would be one of the key risks I think that uh, you know the the thing that investors should be I think ultimately focused on here is recession I mean I, recessions what you know what what bull markets don't die of old age as the as the saying goes um, something has to happen. And, and ultimately, I think that we should all be focused on recession risk. The, the problem as an investor is it's very hard. You know, forget about investors. It's very, it seems to be almost impossible for economists to be able to predict when a recession is happening, even when it's happening. And, and so I think that we spend an awful lot of time meeting with our companies and getting comfort that what they see continues to be strong. You know, we've had a very strong uh, prior reporting period. Our companies delivered fantastic returns. We're just in the middle now, or beginning, I should say, commencing earnings season in North America. And so far, the, the portents are positive, really positive. There's a wave of money coming from an old way of computing, and it's heading in the way of our... Now, again, if you're an IBM that's still struggling, that I think now 22 quarters uh, in a row of negative year-on-year revenue growth, you might not feel the same way about that wall of money. But our companies seem to be on the right side when by by you know by choice obviously, um, and we're you know we're we're seeing that not only in their reported results but also in the fact that our companies are being acquired by those incumbents. So yesterday, a small position in the portfolio a company called Broadsoft was acquired by Cisco. Um, again, it's just another example of how the incumbents are using their balance sheets, flexing their muscles to try and remain relevant um, in a world that I think is heading away from them. And so I, I think that that's the key. We can't, we're not going to be able to predict that, uh, if a recession is or isn't happening. We can look for signs of deterioration in things like breadth and margins and all of the, the classic indicators that people use. But I think that the best way we can really uh, feel comfortable about the portfolio is to meet with the companies. Um, and if there's a change, adjust to it. Okay, so we haven't really got time to talk about all the interesting themes in your portfolio. You follow a thematic approach in your portfolio, as, as we said at the beginning, robotics, uh, e-commerce, and so on. Um, Perhaps we could just quickly pick out one or perhaps two and just say what you think is ones you're particularly excited about and, and uh, where you th where you can see some really interesting things developing uh, and how you're playing that. So would you like to pick out a couple of those things? Yeah, I'll try to pick out maybe three if I have time. Okay. If, I can squeeze sure. if I can squeeze them in the time. Sure. Well, I think we've referenced cloud already. Yes. And I think it's the kind of underpinning of our portfolio. Without the cloud, there is no e-commerce, there is no smartphone, you know, there is no uh, behavioral change associated with a smartphone without the cloud. Um, e-commerce, I think we've also touched on, but I think that you know, listeners might be surprised that you know, we're still talking about less than 10% global penetration of retail sales, and that every year the, the internet, the, the, you know, the e-commerce industry or world takes roughly a 1% 1, 1 from the offline, uh, from offline retail, and it does that by increasing its um, exposure, the number of products it sells, the uh, the SKUs that it, that it serves. It does that by reducing friction. And so the whole mobile commerce 
uh, proposition has just continued to get better. And the other way that it's been doing that is by trying to improve payments. And so there's a lot of excitement in the market about things like fintech, um, you know, financial technology. Um, and I would say that um, there isn't an awful lot for us to choose from in the public market. Well, we found some interesting stories in PayPal, which I'm sure many of your listeners have, uh, are users of or have heard of, uh, a company called Square, um, also in North America, that's sort of helping to redefine the point of sales um, market. And both those companies have been terrific investments, and we we still maintain, we've taken some profits in both actually recently, but they both remain pretty decent holdings. I just think the long-term story of e-commerce um, may, it may sound old hat, but the story remains extremely strong. Um, and Amazon, obviously, is our biggest way of, of playing this theme. Amazon is growing faster than overall e-commerce and, and driving it. The juggernaut is speeding up even, yeah. Well, uh, it absolutely has been. And in China, Alibaba, which, you know, again, we probably should have talked about some of the China names in our portfolio, but um, Alibaba really did re-accelerate this year, which is quite something um, when you already have a, you know, a dominant um, position in, in, uh, beta, in, in, in uh, e-commerce in China. I might highlight a couple of others. I'd, I'd say gaming, computer gaming, um, you know, the, the, the likes of Electronic Arts and Activision. I think that when I think about content, I think one of the things we've learned over the last five to 10 years is that content isn't king. And that actually what's happened is that content is being augmented and replaced. And when you think about the programs that you may or may not watch on Netflix, many of those programs, those franchises didn't exist before Netflix. Netflix has commissioned those programs. Yes. And actually it reminds me very much of football where many of the very largest clubs in the world uh, are, are tremendous franchises, but most of the money is made by players through wages and depreciation. And I feel like that's been true in video. Also, you have this this phenomenon called you know, user-generated content where young people, my children certainly, um, are, are kind of um, happy to be watching some of the best content in the world, like Star Wars or something like that, uh, but equally very happy watching user-generated content where someone's building a custom Nerf gun or watching other people playing computer games. That's an extraordinary thing. Spectator sport, watching computer yes. games. I mean, who would have thought? Esports yeah. is one of the fastest-growing yeah. sporting categories in the world. Um, so video, m music's another one where I think that, you know, the, for every Adele and, uh, you know, a, a kind of a AAA um uh, artist, there's a lot of commoditization going on, you know, in part because of the subscription model um, proliferated by the likes of Spotify. And so actually, I, I think that when you think about music and video, uh, I think that content is being hollowed out and actually that there's a, a, a premium in each of those markets, but the, 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 the bulk of those content types are being commoditized by, by the, really by the internet. When I think about video gaming, that couldn't be further from the truth. And in fact, it costs $100 million to develop a AAA title. And that this content type, these games are being played by young people and they're huge beneficiaries of the internet because instead of going to a shop to download the title, I can now download it directly from my games console or my PC. I can also extend and I can monetize much better these people that spend an awful lot of time on these games. Um, in China, um, you know, players there, there's 55 million people play one particular Tencent game uh, in China every day. Uh, and it actually forced the hand of the government to come out and try to, to rein in the amount of time that Tencent was allowing those people to play to you know, reduce it to one to two hours a day, um, which gives you an idea of, of how important these platforms are in people's lives. And, and, in that, and because of the internet, of course, I can now download items in-game, transactions are made possible. And the monetization of a franchise like FIFA, uh, Electronic Arts, um, or Overwatch uh, Activision, I think is vastly enhanced by the internet. One last sector, if I may. Um, I'd like to just touch on automation uh, and robotics. And I think 
Um, lots of talk recently about robotics because there have been some phenomenal breakthroughs in things like reduction gears and servo drives that have enabled robots to be applied beyond sort of traditional settings where they were used to really do jobs that humans shouldn't or don't want to do. Um, they're now being used where humans can't do the work. And so in the making of an iPhone, the precision required to make an iPhone is impossible by human hand. And, and so it's been fascinating watching a company like Intuitive Surgical that um, has a dominant position, the Da Vinci system is used in, in healthcare, where what starts off as one or two small procedures 10 years ago now becomes commonplace in a whole bunch of other procedures. And now we're looking at things like hernia operations being done by a robot, not by, not by a human. So robots, fascinating. Um, but the big markets there, automotive, uh, medical, um, and, and smartphones. Um, but I think that the bigger story is that the back end of everything, the manufacturing, the warehousing and, uh, and stuff that has been in place for many, many years is no longer appropriate for a world where businesses can see demand in real time. Smartphones have enabled businesses like Booking.com to calibrate their businesses in real time or companies like Inditex, the retailer, to be able to change, chop and change order patterns in near real time. But the manufacturing base, there are 60 million machines in the world, manufacturing machines in the world. And, and 90% of those machines don't talk to one another. And 75% of those machines are 15 years or older. Right. And, and so they weren't built for a world of feedback loops that are in the minutes and days. They were built for worlds where orders were given and, they were, and the products were sent on ships. And, and you know maybe Gordon Brown was right, we did eliminate boom and bust, but it, it, wasn't, it wasn't monetary <laughs> policy, it was robotics and supply chains. And so we see huge opportunity there. Uh, we launched a, a new product actually for the first product that Polar Technology team has launched uh, under my tenure uh, to, to target the automation and artificial intelligence because ultimately what starts off with machines um, replacing old machines, finding new arbitrages, um, ultimately must extend into white collar work. And so the opportunity for uh, machines to learn and artificial intelligence to be applied to large data sets to take on or take off, I should say, humans, menial tasks from humans is a huge long-term opportunity. And so we're really excited about that space. It's already reflected in PCT today, uh, but for those that are interested by this adjacency, there's, there's now a standalone product. Well, that's very interesting, and I'm sure uh, wish you well with that, Ben. Uh, thank you so much for coming in and uh, talking to us today about the themes in your portfolio and, and what you're doing. Uh, I think your evident enthusiasm shines through, as it has done. I've known you for 10 years, and uh, it's always been this way. Uh, and I would actually also commend uh, listeners if they're interested to go to the Polar uh, Technology Trust uh, website where there's a lot of presentation, a lot of information about the kind of things that uh, Ben has been talking about. You have been listening to a Moneymakers podcast in association with Share Radio. You can find us on leading channels such as SoundCloud and YouTube and on the Share Radio website. To find out more, visit www.money-makers.co.